From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host this week, Brian DeAngelis, Managing Director at HPS. Today, we'll take a look into the impact of COVID-19 on the oil industry. I'm joined by Stratton Curtin, Managing Director, and Bryce Campanelli, who have recently penned some original analysis on the current economic crisis in the oil industry. How we got here, the impact, and what can be done going forward. Thank you so much for joining me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Stratton, why don't I start with you? You and Bryce released a paper today describing global oil markets as, quote unquote, in chaos. Um, Give us an overview of what's been going on. So if you haven't been paying attention, essentially what's happened is the entire oil markets domestically, globally has been flipped, the table's been turned over. Um, You know, at the beginning of the year, oil was hovering around $60 per barrel, which actually for a lot of producers was already kind of low. And we've seen it drop to close to $20 a barrel, which for most producers is disastrous, you know, and that's for producers here in the U.S. and around the globe. Um, So what's happened is two-thirds of their revenue has disappeared overnight. Um, It's created extreme imbalances um, in both what's being produced and what's being demanded. So, you know, we are producing about 100 million barrels a day, and now demand has gone anywhere possibly as low as 65 million barrels a day. And what Bryce and I looked into was looking at previous recessions over the last 40 years, how much demand destruction did we see caused by those economic downturns? And what we found was, you know, in the last 40 years, there were only two recessions that actually had any sort of impact on reducing our demand for oil. Um, And the largest of those, which was actually two recessions in 1980 and 1981 back to back, only you know, um, only hit demand by about 9%, whereas this one has lowered demand anywhere from 20 to 35%. Um, so basically nobody was set up to weather, you know, a, a, a price drop this significant and, you know, a storm of this size. And we actually saw oil futures go into negative pricing territory. Bryce, you want to explain to us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so um, mostly, most of the trading that when you talk about uh, trading oil is actually happening in the futures market. And most of that is in the West Texas Intermediate, which is kind of the benchmark for oil pricing. Um, and we saw back in April, due to a lot of concerns about demand, and then about a storage crisis, um, we saw futures contracts kind of right around the expiration date of, of the trades actually dropping into negative territory um, and dropping to historic lows. So at the end of the day, what that meant was uh, investors basically did not paying others to take the oil off of their hands because they did not have want to incur, incur the cost of storage. Um, and so what that means when you're basically trading a oil's future contract, you're actually kind of, you're actually trading a thousand barrels of crude oil um, in the West Texas Intermediate. And we basically use that oil benchmarking um, for all of our analysis in, in, the, um, in our research. Yeah, great. And the West West Texas Intermediate WTI, um, that's just the the basket of oil prices that we that most people use for American oil prices. Got it. Got it. So tell us how this all happened. This wasn't just the COVID nineteen pandemic, or or was it? Were there other forces at play here? I definitely think there were other forces at play here. Um, 
I think what COVID did is it is forced a reckoning for a lot of companies that was going to happen at some point. It's just happening a lot quicker now. There were a lot of producers um, who I had mentioned at the beginning, they were really already kind of either losing a little money or just barely breaking even with oil around $60 a barrel. Um, and so I've heard these people, they're called, um, referred to as treadmill producers. They're barely breaking even, maybe making a little bit of money, but they're still having to take out a lot of debt to cover their overhead costs. Mm-hmm. So they're pumping oil just to service the price of that debt. So you see companies who might only produce a couple hundred million dollars in profit each year with debt loads in the several billions of dollars. And so what's happened as prices have come down so dramatically, you know, these companies now can't even make their debt servicing payments. And that's probably going to cause, you know, bankruptcy, restructuring and a consolidation of the industry. So COVID is what has, you know, sped that process up. But for a lot of these medium and small producers, you know, this was absent a big uh, spike in prices, this was probably going to happen at some point. I think to that, to that point, I mean, you kind of saw, I, I, everybody kind of pointed to, at least in the environmental community, you know, when Jim Cramer came out and said, oh, you know, he's done with oil. And that was a, that was a big point and kind of also just shows where that, that transition was kind of happening. It was still on the fringes and, and maybe not as expedited as was happening now under, with uh, everything happening with global demand. Um, but I think a lot of those trends were certainly there before. And how much did the um, global issues we saw at play between Russia and Iran and others kind of right before, I guess, COVID hit, or maybe it was right at the same time play into this? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. They kind of did a, a 180 in the course of just a couple of weeks, because I think at the beginning of March, maybe, maybe late February, um, Saudi Arabia kind of threw down the gauntlet at Russia, um, you know, and said they were in a spike production, um, you know, and so at first we were in this environment where production was going to go even higher at a time where we knew demand was going down. But then they did reverse course and implemented one of the largest cuts, or I actually think the largest cut um, OPEC has ever made, although it was actually OPEC plus Russia and a small group of other oil producing countries who are outside of the formal organization, where they agreed to cut about 10 million barrels a day. Um, The challenge we've seen is that even though that was a big cut, it's still only best case scenario, half of what the demand destruction has been. Worst case scenario, it's less than a third of what the demand destruction has been. So, you know, even though they have you know, they've agreed to cuts, it's still not where we need to be for the market to balance out. And frankly, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical because OPEC countries also have a history of cheating on their production cuts, you know, because right. it's, in, it's in their best interest to keep producing if they think the other guy is going to cut because they're actually rivals in the marketplace for share. Um, and then the other thing is these cuts are actually pretty short term. Unless OPEC decides in June when they meet again to extend them, these cuts of almost 10 million barrels a day really only last for about two months. And after that, they start gradually ramping back up so that by next year, they're planning for their cuts to only be, be about 6 million barrels a day. And so I guess the macro question then becomes, will economies have actually recovered you know, to make up that difference? And at least right now, that seems like a pretty skeptical assumption. So switching back to the domestic side, I know in the paper, you all looked at some of the state regulatory bodies and and what they could potentially do to drive production cuts. What else can you tell us there? Um, Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking today, 
Um, we're recording on uh, May 5th. So today was um, a big day. The Railroad Commission of Texas actually um, was met today to potentially consider um, production cuts. And they decided not to, um, citing, you know, letting market forces um, take, take control in, in the U.S. And, and also citing some of the um, production cuts that um, some of the companies have actually already uh, pledged to do and, and are actually working on currently. Um, and so there's a couple more. We have Oklahoma and North Dakota who have similar regulatory bodies who are also going to be um, considering uh, potential production cuts in the in the coming uh, month. But it seems as of right now, pretty unlikely from the uh, kind of state regulatory standpoint of there actually being a, a big kind of cut similar and any any OPEC style uh, production cut. I absolutely agree. Uh, and I think one of the things that um, people might gloss over whenever they hear about OPEC cuts versus the U.S. is, you know, when we talk about Saudi Arabia cutting production, that's because there's one oil company in Saudi Arabia, one national oil company, right. Saudi Aramco. It's part of the government. You know, it's it has to be responsive to the government. The government can literally tell it what to do, how much to produce, how little to produce. There is no formal lever like that in the United States. Obviously. The companies that do business here are private, but there's, you know, short of some sort of extraordinary circumstance, there's no existing, you know, mechanism or lever for the president to pull to say, we're going to cut production by 2 million barrels a day. So as Bryce was talking about, some states do have bodies that can do that, but Texas was going to go first. They decided not to. And I think if Texas isn't going to cut production, nobody else is either. And so on that point, though, I mean, we are seeing some of the oil companies or at least hearing rumors they might want some sort of federal support to help get through this. I mean, is that a place where the, the federal government, the administration or Congress, you guys tell me, can put some pressure on them to make cuts? Or how do you see that playing out? Yes, it depends on the circumstance. Um, I think, honestly, a lot of the pressure on the federal government to do something has kind of lifted because... Um, this ties back into monetary policy now, but, you know, the Federal Reserve has their Main Street lending program. Right. Some of the changes they made to that program after the comment period raised the maximum number of employees in the revenue cap. And that really captures most of the oil companies that are in trouble right now because the guys oh, who are interesting. OK, yeah, because the guys who are in real trouble right now are the small and medium sized one. It's, you know, Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, they're all going to be fine. But it's these companies that most people have never heard of that are the ones that are in trouble. And raising that cap will actually make most of them eligible for it. They're not eligible for the programs that are running through Treasury right now, but they would be eligible for the Fed's programs. And I think outside of, outside of those kind of programs, I think an actual large-scale legislative bailout um, is pretty unlikely um, the API has come out um, against it. Now that represents some of the larger producers, but I think kind of Strand's point, you do see that, that split um, between the actual industry. It's not, there's no current cohesive voice on exactly what people want as, as there is no cohesive voice on what actually um, people in government plan to do. I think there's a lot of splintered opinions and, and different approaches. And so I think you're seeing that. And I, I think that will end up resulting in probably little to no action being taken. Yeah, and honestly, the other things that the federal government has been talking about doing are really just kind of nibbling around the edges. So they've been talking about 
Department of Energy buying oil on the market for our strategic petroleum reserve, which is the U.S. government's reserve of oil. Um, But there's only about 100 million barrels worth of space in that, and he would need money from Congress to do that, which seems unlikely. Um, And then, you know, the other things... And the other things all have to go through Congress, and I just don't see any way that... I see very little (laughs) appetite for Congress to act on this, yeah. Yes, especially like Bryce was saying, the industry is philosophically split. I mean, you know, this is painting with broad brushes, but, you know, it's generally a pretty pro-free market industry. So while you have some people being very loud about government intervention right now, you know, the biggest players in these fields really don't want to open up that door. So, do, I mean, what does the future hold? Does this become a situation where the, the biggest players get bigger as some of those smaller guys suffer? Or will the Fed's programs be enough to help these smaller companies? What do you guys see as the next, I don't know, couple weeks, couple months of this? I mean, I think a lot hinges also on how fast we see demand spike. And I think if we see a, a relatively sustained recovery, that could change the whole conversation in the calculus. I think a lot of what we're talking about though is because it's so unknown. And, and that is really going to determine kind of the, the shape of it. But I do think from a, I do think that in the immediacy, we will start to see some um, bankruptcies from small and medium sized uh, companies who, who are just going to take too much of a financial hit from the lower oil prices that we're looking at probably sustained for at least the next month to two months. But now there's even talk that peak oil demand might not even reach where the levels we were at in 2019 till 2022, 2023. I mean, some are even saying now that we may have actually reached peak oil demand in 2019. Um, and if that is the case, we will certainly, I think, see consolidation and see some, some reductions from smaller and medium-sized uh, companies. Right. Well, because what I would add is the massive challenge is that, you know, oil is a global commodity. So even if we have a relatively quick recovery in the U.S., if we don't see something similar around the world, then you're still going to have a big gap between supply and demand, and it's going to keep oil prices low. But I agree. I think we're going to see consolidation in the small and medium-sized shops. Like I said, the the ones that most Americans probably haven't heard of. And I think the question for them is, are they going to, you know, seek a buyout or restructuring and bankruptcy? Or is there going to be some strategic consolidation where maybe you see two medium-sized companies come together to form a bigger company with a more diversified portfolio? Because their challenge right now is they're very heavily weighted in these fields where production is just more expensive. So they need a higher oil price to make them profitable. Right. In terms of, um, you know, prices bouncing back, I, I am just curious not to put you guys on the spot, but as states start to reopen their economies, there will still be some restrictions. You, you would like to think that the road trips to the beach won't be as packed, that road trips to Disney World are not happening. So those big summer driving months, do you think that'll be enough do they need a lot? Do they only need a little of it? What do you think that'll impact? Well, first things first, I'm from Florida, so I hope both of those things do come back. Um, <laughs> I hope they come back too. I'm just not sure they will. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that's 
going to be enough, um, you know, because transportation is obviously a very important sector for the oil industry, but it's not the only one. Right. Um, you know, it, oil, oil cruise lines are restarting, <laughs> so. but not even as a transportation fuel oil um, and oil yeah. derived products are a huge input into manufacturing. Right. So, you know, this really assumes, you know, you need an economy wide um, uptick in economic activity, not just people commuting more, you know, taking trips to the beach. Yeah. And you, you also need to see uptick in developing markets. I mean, that is where a lot of this, this revenue is coming from for these companies is, is in these developing countries that are, you know, expanding manufacturing and, and wrap and relying on more and more oil and expanding market share for, uh, for oil. And I think if you don't see recovery in those markets and if you see a delayed, um, response and a delayed, um, basically impact of, of COVID there, um, you won't see the, the, the bounce back that um, could just happen if there was recovery in the U.S. Great. So uh, just a couple more questions before we wrap up. I'm curious if this chaos, as you will, over the past couple of weeks, that these events, do you see them having any real longer term impact on our broader either energy industry or even our, our energy policy as a country going forward? You know, I think one of the things that people have been pointing out that's interesting about this drop in oil prices versus past ones is um, the dichotomy between oil and gas and renewables. It's generally in the past, advocates for renewable energy saw low oil prices as the enemy. Um, you know, because it it made technologies like electric vehicles less competitive, um, you know, particularly if it was low natural gas prices, it made natural gas compete at a lower price than renewables. Um, but because renewables in the time since our last significant period prolonged oil prices, which would have been in the 1990s, are much more mature and much more economically competitive now, um, you know, we actually haven't seen that play out in the marketplace yet. So, you know, whether that drives a long-term change, I don't know, but it definitely, I think, has um, people did not expect um, this to happen because you know people would have assumed we would have seen a downtick in the electricity produced by renewables, and we're just not seeing that right now. Yeah, I I, I totally agree, and I I think I mean I also think there's there are kind of two other things that I think could potentially come out of this. I think one from a market perspective, you know oil has long been a, a safe um, and secure investment. And I think with prices dropping negative and now seeing that oil is, is fallible and can be depend, you know, moved by these, um, these market mechanisms, I think now you're seeing that it potentially could change the way people invest. And I, I think that is something that you know, maybe won't drive immediate change, but is something in the long term market makeup that um, is interesting to follow and track. And then secondly, I think something that I'll be interested to see and to follow is, is how this changes as companies. A lot of these oil companies and, um, are making announcements to go carbon neutral by 2050 mm -hmm. and are making pledges to massively increase okay. their investments in renewables. And, and I will be interested to see if this, how this impacts those investments and whether it does kind of increase um, the speed in which they want to deploy those hundreds of gigawatts of of um, renewable energy that they've pledged to, because you know if that is seen as kind of the transition is this is speeding up that transition, it may also in turn 
see these companies moving away from just simply being oil companies to that more broader energy company model um, that I think we're already kind of seeing before that we're already seeing before and that now could be um, sped up. Right. Well, anything else you guys are watching uh, for over the next couple of days, couple of weeks, things listeners should, should keep an eye on. I think the geopolitical implications of this are going to be huge. Um, starting on the domestic side and then moving out, we've already seen several senators call for tariffs on Saudi Arabian oil, um, you know, which is both unusual because Saudi Arabia is an ally um, and they did us a huge favor by significantly cutting their production to try to bring prices back up. But beyond just Saudi Arabia, you know, many of these OPEC countries are hugely dependent on oil exports for their revenue. I mean, like wealthier countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia, they have, you know, um, reserves of foreign exchanges and sovereign wealth funds they can tap for a while. But when you talk about countries like Iraq, Nigeria, Libya, Venezuela, these countries in some cases depend on 90% of their government revenue from oil. And like that is just slashed right now in countries like Iraq and Libya that already aren't stable. Um, so I, I think there's going to be huge geopolitical implications from this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm interested in what, what I'm kind of looking forward to is, is basically later this month as June future contracts begin to expire, how if we see similar to the, to, um, the lead up to May's contracts, if we see another round of uh, basically another drop in prices, or if we see a, a broader stabilization um, in oil prices, I think that will be very telling of the optimism that uh, investors and market participants have um, leading into um, the recovery and, and the summer travel season. Great, great. Well, I want to thank you both for, for joining me today. It was a great conversation. And uh, for everyone listening at home, you can check out our website, hamiltonplacestrategies.com. Uh, Bryson Stratton's analysis is up on our blog, Oil's New Refrain. Don't drill, baby, drill. Check it out. Thank you both. You're listening to HPS Insights. Uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight and visit us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.